This is another iRaw podcast. But the problem is that human beings have interfered too much with wildlife, that not every case of a sick wild animal is natural selection, and you need to intervene, otherwise it can lead to their extinction. Welcome back to the Animal Turn, everyone. In this season, we're focusing on animals and biosecurity, and understandably, questions of health have come up. Several times in the season, guests have mentioned One Health and One Health approaches, and I've expressed my concerns about the concept and a fear that this might just be another concept that industries use, and that's kind of subject to a variety of greenwashing efforts. But my guest today shows that with time and attention, a One Health approach can really have significant impacts. Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka is the founder and CEO of Conservation Through Public Health, an award-winning NGO that protects endangered gorillas and other wildlife through One Health approaches. And in today's episode, we talk about the concept of community-led conservation. Gladys shows how attention to the well-being and livelihoods of neighboring communities helps animal health and lives. Gladys is an extremely accomplished person. She graduated from the Royal Veterinary College, University of London in 1996, and then established Uganda Wildlife Authority's first veterinary department. In 2000, she did a zoological medicine residency and a master in specialized veterinary medicine at North Carolina Zoological Park and North Carolina State University. Her research focused on the human wildlife livestock interface. In 2015, she also founded Gorilla Conservation Coffee to support farmers living around habitats where gorillas are found. Gladys is a National Geographic Explorer and a Shoke Fellow and a Mulango Foundation Henry Arnold Fellow. She is also on the Leadership Council of Women for the Environment in Africa, Chairperson of the Africa Chapter of the Explorers Club, and Vice President of the African Primatological Society. Gladys is also a member of the World Health Organization Special Advisory Group for the Origin of Novel Pathogens. She has won numerous awards, including the 2008 San Diego Zoo Conservation in Action Award, the 2009 Whitley Gold Award, the 2011 Wings Woman of Discovery and Exploration Humanity Award, the 2017 President of Uganda's Golden Jubilee Award, and more recently in 2021, she was recognized by Avance Media as being among the 100 most influential women in Africa. She also won the UNEP's Champion of the Earth Award in the category of Science and Innovation. I also watched a presentation that she gave, which we talk a bit about in the interview, where in 2022, she won the Edinburgh Medal for her work on planetary health. So she's done a great deal and and she's incredible to talk to. And you'll hear my kind of excitement at learning about the work she's doing in Uganda throughout the interview. We spoke a lot about her work with engaging with communities around Bundi National Park in Uganda and how this has been extremely beneficial for mountain gorillas. Her transdisciplinary and holistic approach to veterinary science is truly inspiring, and I hope that you enjoy and learn something from it too. Hi, Gladys. Welcome to the Animal Time Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I watched your lecture yesterday. So you gave a lecture with the at, in Edinburgh. I watched that yesterday, and it was a phenomenal lecture. And I saw that you've just won so many awards for the work that you've done with gorillas in Uganda, everything from UN awards to awards in Edinburgh to just, I mean, the list goes on and on. So thank you for being here today and to to teach me a little bit about the work that you're doing in Uganda with uh, with gorillas. So why don't we get straight into it to learn a little bit about you, because you really do have an amazing, an amazing story. And I think that it's important for us to kind of learn a bit about your story because it's really interconnected to learning about questions of 
by security and, and in this case, gorillas as well. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in conservation? Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. And I'm glad you enjoyed the presentations. Yeah, I was really, really honored to win the Edinburgh Medal and the UN Awards and the other awards. I would say that I started, I grew up with many pets at home as I was growing up. And I got introduced to a particular pet, a velvet monkey, that actually wasn't our pet, that was the pet of our next door neighbor. And this monkey used to like coming home, putting the cats and dogs tails, stealing food. And one time even played the piano after I played the piano. I was like, wow, this monkey is so intelligent. And I started to get fascinated by primates. Then I had an opportunity to set up a wildlife club in my high school in Uganda, Jubilee Secondary School. And that was the time when I felt that I wanted to be a vet who also works with wildlife. I got an opportunity to do my vet school at the Royal Vet College, University of London, where I was allowed to spend some time at home working. And I got to work with chimps, captive chimps that were victims of the bushmeat trade in Entebbe Zoo. And their mothers had been eaten for food and the babies were sold. And that was a really interesting and fun experience being with those chimps, very, very intelligent. And then I also got to work with chimpanzees in the wild under Professor Vernon Reynolds in Budongo Forest Project in Northwest Uganda. And then I got to work with the mountain gorillas in Bwindi under the supervision of Dr. Liz McPhee, who was heading the International Gorilla Conservation Program. And I've never left since then. <laughs> that was like 20, I went there in 1994. So it's coming to 28 years ago is when I first did my study on gorillas. And then two years later, I got the job as the first vet for the Uganda Wildlife Authority, um, where they filled. Incredible. And you were, you were 26 at the time, right? Yes, I was. So, I was 26 at the time. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Um, so you were Uganda's first wildlife vet. And what, what, did, what did that entail? Oh, it was pretty exciting and daunting because when I, I started working as Uganda's first wildlife vet, I was surrounded by conservationists and conservation biologists who believed in natural selection. And that was the only thing they felt that if an animal was old, it was time for it to die. You shouldn't tamper with nature. It's survival for the fittest. And a lot of what they said was true and important. But the problem is that human beings have interfered too much with wildlife, that not every case of a sick wild animal is natural selection. And you need to intervene, otherwise it can lead to their extinction. And that was why I was hired as the first veterinarian for the Uganda Wildlife Authority, because mountain gorilla tourism had just begun. And they were concerned that people were going to make gorillas sick, because once you invite people to visit gorillas as tourists, you get really close to them and we can easily spread each respiratory diseases to each other. So that was why I was hired primarily to look after the gorillas, make sure they don't pick up diseases from people. But then, of course, while I was there, they got me to work with all the other species because they realized, okay, now we have a vet. These are all these things that vets can do. So it was a very exciting first job. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's a significant investment, I think, on the on behalf of the Ugandan government into, into wildlife. And I think what you said there is quite interesting about being a vet for wildlife, because I think in our minds, we associate vets with maybe domesticated animals, you know, our dogs, our cats, but we don't necessarily think of wildlife as being in need of that kind of care, because I think, as you as you said, we've got this idea that we are here and nature is 
out there somewhere and needs to look after itself. So when, when you encountered gorillas, you said that they were at kind of risk of, of diseases from humans because of close proximity. What, what kind of diseases were, were they facing? The gorillas were, the biggest risk was respiratory disease because that doesn't require touching. And obviously being wild animals, you don't touch them. You're not supposed to. And at the beginning, they were actually just started being habituated. So you, people never really got close to them. They started, you could get as close as five meters, but that was it. So the biggest worry was respiratory disease, you know, such as the common flu. I mean, a flu, which for you and me, it's, we will recover from it, could be devastating for gorillas or chimpanzees. We share over 98% genetic material, 98.4% with gorillas and 98.8 with chimps. And so we can easily make each other sick. And of course, the biggest worry is a disease which is in a closely related host, but the host has never, you know, the, the animal that gets it has never been exposed to it. So common flu viruses have actually resulted in chimpanzees and gorillas in other countries dying. And even in Uganda, chimpanzees have died of common flu viruses, which they got from people and not only necessarily tourists, but also, and also from the local communities. So it's something that, you know, the moment you habituate gorillas and you can get close to them, they lose their fear of people. So they started to range in places where they would have not ranged before. But because now they've lost their fear of people, they go back to those places. But those places have now been taken over by high human population growth and density. And so when it became a national park, they stopped people cutting trees. But the gorillas went back to the places where they used to range before. And one of the first diseases they picked up was scabies, which in people is generally not considered a very big fatal disease, but it's extremely contagious and difficult to get rid of. And so they probably came across dirty clothing that people put out on scarecrows to chase away gorillas, baboons, and other wildlife. Actually, baboons are worse than gorillas. They're way worse in, in causing problems. I know baboons. I'm, I'm from, from South Africa and we, um, we know baboons down, <laughs> down in the Cape. The baboons make themselves very well known. So, so we believe that that's how they got the scabies. And yeah, and, and so respiratory disease is a big one. Scabies is another one. You know, intestinal parasites or so bacteria like cholera, typhoid, entamoeba, jardia, all of that. Whatever we can get, they can get. I mean, what's interesting about what you're saying is so far in the season, we've spoken a lot about biosecurity and I think how humans think about biosecurity as, you know, kind of the flow of disease going from animals to humans, that somehow animals pose this really big threat to humans, which is not, not wrong. There are a lot of, a lot of zoonotic diseases that do flow that way. But I think what's interesting about how you're talking here is that it's the flow goes the other way too, that our presence, our presence makes animals vulnerable but not in the same way. So like the way in which a baboon or a, a gorilla are vulnerable to us is different to the ways in which maybe a, a wild bird is vulnerable. Yes, definitely, because we share quite a lot of genetic material. And actually, during COVID, the awareness of all this was heightened even more. It was really, we all got really scared because not only did we know that common flu viruses are also highly contagious for great apes, but Studies were done during the pandemic that showed that we humans, great apes and old world primates like baboons, we all share the same 
ACE2 protein receptors that the COVID virus SARS-CoV-2 was attaching to that causes COVID. So the angiotensin converting enzyme receptors, we, we shared the very same proteins. And that meant that the way that COVID makes us sick is the same way it's going to make the great apes and the old world primates sick. So that was a huge worry and it continued to be a big worry. And maybe we can locate you a little bit here because I've been watching videos. I know, I know kind of where you are, but you're in a, you're in a, sp- a specific part of Uganda that's got a special kind of population of gorillas. Could you maybe tell us a bit about gorilla populations on the continent and what their kind of populations look like? Why, why should we even be paying attention to gorillas? Why, why is the fact that they can get sick uh, an important question? I first got attracted really to working with the mountain gorillas, you know, when I did that research and I realized there were just so few in number. There are only about 650 mountain gorillas in the whole world. And I felt that if we didn't do something, we're going to lose them. And actually there's four gorilla subspecies in the wild and they're all found in Africa, naturally found in Africa. The mountain gorilla is at the time was one of the most critically endangered but because of very good conservation efforts over the past 25 years, the numbers have almost doubled, which we're very excited about. So they're just over 1,000 now, 1,063, a minimum of 1,063 since the last census in 2018. And, but they're the only gorilla subspecies showing a positive growth trend, unfortunately, because the eastern lowland gorillas, which are found, the mountain gorillas are found in Uganda, Rwanda, and Democratic Republic of Congo. Then the eastern lowland gorillas are only found in DRC. And in, in Democratic Republic of Congo, there's about just under, maybe around 9,000 Eastern Lowland gorillas, although censuses are still being done. And, but the numbers keep going down. They're not going up, they're going down. And then there's also Western Lowland gorillas found in DRC and eight other countries in Africa. And the Western Lowland gorillas are actually quite a lot. There's almost 100,000. But the reason they're considered also to be critically endangered is because they're threatened by disease. Ebola is a big one. And also the bushmeat trade. People eat them a lot in that part of the world. It's cultural to think that if you eat a gorilla or a chimpanzee, you can become as strong as them. And then there's the population which is even more smaller in number than the mountain gorillas. And that's the cross river gorillas, only found in Nigeria and Cameroon. They're only about 300. And so all of the gorilla subspecies are critically endangered, apart from the mountain gorillas, which in 2018 stopped being critical, but are now endangered because of the positive growth trend. And I mean, part of the reason for the positive growth trend is, I think it's directly related to some of the efforts of your work with Conservation Through Public Health, which is a, a company or a, an NGO that you founded. And I, I want to come back to your company in, in a moment, but before we do that, I just wanted to talk about, so the threats that all of these different gorillas across the continent are facing, you've mentioned disease and you've mentioned also things like poaching and eating. Are these the main threats that are facing these different gorillas or are there other kind of threats that are driving their population decline? The biggest threats, as you mentioned, is this disease, poaching and bushmeat trade. Luckily, in Uganda and Rwanda, people don't eat gorillas. The people who used to live in the forest as hunter-gatherers see they, it, they, it was bad luck for them to look in the eyes of the gorillas, so they would avoid them. They don't eat them, but the rest of Africa, they do. Then the other big issue, which is habitat loss to high human population growth, that's a very big problem. And I would say that with the mountain gorillas, the biggest problems are habitat loss and disease. 
and also for other species in their forest. So they accidentally get caught in snares or get, get speared, which happened actually in Uganda during COVID. But with the, all, the, all the other gorilla subspecies, the bushmeat trade is a very big problem as well. Yeah, so, but we're really pleased that, you know, part of our efforts have really helped. We've contributed to this growth along with the government and also the other NGOs and the tour operators, because tourism has also played a big role. The mountain gorillas are the only ones that have tourism, very vibrant tourism going on. It's been going on for, you know, over 20 years. And I think that has also helped a lot because it's brought benefits to the community. But there's also been veterinary care and improved community engagement. We're also improving community health as well as livelihoods. And the money from tourism has helped to play for law enforcement. So the anti-patrol are much greater, but also some of that money shared with the local communities. So that, that has all really helped. Well, I mean, let's talk more about that because the, the concept in focus today is kind of community-led conservation. And I think what you're pointing to here is how in different different regions of the continent, you know, while there are similarities in terms of some of the threats that the gorillas face, um, they're also very locally specific. They're very contextual. You can respond to different kinds of issues depending on where you are. And you realize through, through conservation, through public health, the organization that you started, that you have to focus on community dynamics. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the organization and the work that you've done to help the gorilla populations have this, this rebound? Yep. When people made gorillas sick, as was, that was one of my very first cases as the first veterinarian for the Uganda Wildlife Authority. A few years later, everybody felt that I should lead the efforts to improve the public health of the communities bordering the park, because I was the only vet in the whole organization. And they were right, because, you know, in vet school, you're taught, not, you're taught on veterinary public health, which is very similar to human public health, basically. We're just, human beings are just another animal, just a complicated animal. <laughs> So I, I was probably the best person in the organization to lead that effort because they were concerned that there was open defecation. And, you know, when gorillas go into people's gardens, they can pick up cholera or typhoid. They were concerned that they were not covering the rubbish heaps. You know, they, they were not washing their hands. There were so many issues on top of the fact that they put out dirty clothing on scarecrows. And I led this effort and it was a real eye opener for me and a turning point in my life because we met over 1,000 people in eight villages, and we went together with the community conservation warden and ranger who talked to the community about the benefits of the park and try and resolve human wildlife conflict. They are hired by the government. And then we also went with the district health assistant who's hired by the Ministry of Health, and me as a vet who's working with wildlife. So it was basically a multidisciplinary team, which now is considered to be a One Health team. And we spoke about all the issues that are happening and what the problems were. And I was about to tell them what the solution is, because me being a vet, I'm solving problems for people. And the, the warden and ranger touched my arm and said, let them come up with a solution. And they came up with much better solutions than what I was going to propose for them. They're much more practical, much more varied, and work better in the environment. And so we used some of those solutions to start the NGO. And they included, they all wanted health services to be brought closer to them. I didn't realize up to that point how difficult it was for them to get to a hospital because the hospital is 20 kilometers away and there's hardly any public transport. I also didn't realize that, you know, they really, really have poor hygiene, many of them. And they said, could you continue these sessions so that we can continue to improve our health and hygiene? And then they also said we should strengthen the human gorilla conflict team that chases gorillas back. There's a group of 
community members who are trained by the Wildlife Authority and other NGOs to have the gorillas back when they come out. And so when we started CTPH, our mission became to promote biodiversity conservation by enabling people to coexist with gorillas and other wildlife through improving their health, the health of the people, the health of the animals, and the well-being of the people and their livelihoods. We got into livelihoods maybe eight years after starting the NGO because we realized that many people are unhealthy because they're poor. And although other NGOs were focusing on livelihoods, there were certain aspects they weren't focusing on, such as coffee, gorilla conservation coffee. So my husband, who's a founder member of CTPH, brought up this idea that why don't we create a global brand that can save the gorillas by you know, giving farmers good price for good coffee and then selling it to tourists who visit and also other people around the world. And we found out that some of these farmers are not part of the tourism industry. You know, not everybody can be a park ranger or a porter who carries tourist luggage to the gorillas or, you know, sell crafts or accommodation and food. It was difficult for some people to really benefit from tourism. But even as you're going to visit the gorillas, you often cross coffee farms because remember, it's a very hard edge. And they would sometimes stop and tell people this is how a, this is a coffee tree. And a lot of tourists are fascinated because the only time they see coffee is in a supermarket. So that also becomes part of the gorilla trekking tour. And But then these people are not getting a steady market or a fair price for their coffee. So it's been really good engaging them. And a donation from every bag sold goes back to support the work of CTPH in the very same communities, improving community health, gorilla health and conservation education. And so, yeah, those are three integrated programs, wildlife conservation with a focus on wildlife health, community health with a one health focus, and then alternative livelihoods. Yeah, we're currently working in six parishes. We mainly focus on the parishes and the villages where gorillas come out, where there's a lot of human and gorilla conflict. But we're pleased that some of what we're doing in those parishes where gorillas come out is being adopted by other NGOs who are not necessarily focused on that particular part, you know, the human gorilla conflict, and they're taking other parishes around the park, which is great. That is great because, I mean, you are responding here to kind of gorillas and humans coming to contact with one another. But I think what you said right there in the beginning is when you start to pay attention to the humans who really live on the, the edge and the, the boundaries with kind of wild habitats, they face different kinds of conflicts and different kinds of pressures than folks who are living in cities. And that's not to say that people in cities are not engaging wildlife, but those are different kinds of conversations and questions that need to happen. And I think just the work that you're doing sounds a lot like you're asking practical questions about what both people and animals need. And that to respond and help the gorillas, it is pivotal that you pay attention to the people who are nearby so that you don't, I mean, questions of tourism, you could see how communities could also get really enraged and angry when it seems like so much investment is being put into animals or into tourism and they're not getting that kind of support that they need. And and I could imagine that it must be really frustrating. Uh, but uh, before I move on, I just want to make sure that we really highlight your coffee brand because it's it really is cool. You've got a wonderful kind of cover. If people want to buy some coffee to support the work that you're doing in Burundi, uh, where can they find, is it possible to buy this coffee online? And if they want to support your efforts with this coffee for getting money both to the local communities, but also to helping the gorillas, uh, where can they do that? Yes, there, it's possible to buy this coffee online. We have, they can visit our website, gccoffee.org or gorillaconservationcoffee.org. 
And on that website, they, they will be able to purchase coffee. It's available. We have a distributor in the UK, Money Row Beans. It's also available in the US at gccoffeeusa.com. And you can get it there. We, at one point, had it available in South Africa through Carico Cafe. But during COVID, they stopped placing orders and hopefully they'll place more orders again. And we have had it available also in France and other countries in Europe. It's also available in the news in New Zealand, a site saying gccoffeenz.com. Um, so, yes. So maybe we have listeners who can contact you and get... So if, if there's a listener listening to you from Germany or somewhere, could they contact you and place a big order to support you? Yes, they could. They could definitely. Yep. Yes, we're trying to really open up all those markets. So, yes, yeah, very exciting. And actually during the pandemic, whenever I tell people that even if you can't visit the gorillas because of lockdown, you can actually support them by buying coffee because the money that they pay then enables us to support a farmer and reduces that one more person going into the forest to poach and collect firewood, which is very important for conservation. So if you're listening and you like coffee and you've got some money, go and buy some coffee because it's really, this is the pinnacle of what fair trade I think tries to do. And, and, and like you said, one health conservation. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned that kind of the coffee is supporting because not everybody can engage in tourism. And my one concern with kind of conservation being coupled with tourism is that when things go wrong, when tourists can't come for whatever reason, then everybody kind of struggles. Like, how do you rebound from that? So, you know, I think the coffee stuff is really important because you're also, you're being dynamic in that you're not relying completely on tourism, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, actually, it actually realizes whole potential during the pandemic, you know, because before the pandemic, our main customers were tourists, you know, staying at the lodges. Sometimes they met the farmers and it was going really well. And then suddenly the pandemic comes and whoop, no one can travel. <laughs> and so we were lucky to be able to get the UK distributor. And then the US distributor reordered again in January 2021 because he had run out of coffee and flights were not flying to America. And the New Zealand distributor also reordered. So yeah, it, the pandemic was a big wake-up call that you can't just rely on tourism and you need to have other ways of supporting community conservation, conservation and communities. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Yeah, because tourism can be tourism can be fickle. One minute it's good, and the next minute it's not. So, the kind of responses you've got, and you, you're employing also a, a large number of people. So it's not just that the the money is going. I mean, the money is helping gorillas, but the amount of employment that you've created around gorilla conservation is pretty impressive. Could you tell us about some of the the jobs that people are doing? Some of the jobs that people are doing. We have veterinarians. We have public health experts, you know, community-led public health experts at the community level. 
we, you know, we have a community health and conservation field officers. We have monitoring and evaluation officers. We have wildlife health technicians or laboratory technicians because we do a lot of lab work. We, we regularly analyze samples between people and animals. We, we always, every month we collect fecal samples from the mountain gorillas, from their night nest, they're non-invasive, and we examine them for parasites. Sometimes we add bacteria and viruses more recently, um, trying to see what they have or what they could be picking up from people and their livestock. And we also compare it to what we're finding in the people and the livestock. And so that's a very key part of our program. And we work closely with the park rangers as well. We also have, on top of the normal people, you know, accountants and marketing specialists and fundraisers. We also have on our team people who are specialists, agronomists who are specialists in coffee, coffee growing. But also during the pandemic, we started a new project, again, which was related to the pandemic, called Ready to Grow. Because when one of the gorillas got killed by a hungry bushmeat poacher, was the lead silverback of Mkuringo Gorilla Group, which is the first group to be habituated for tourism in the southern sector. When Rafiki was killed by a hungry bushmeat poacher, we realized that we needed to support people because they were poaching because they were hungry. This particular poacher got 11 years in jail, which is the longest anyone has ever had for killing wild animals in Uganda. So it was a victory for conservation. But his family is very badly off. He has a wife of 22 years old with three kids under the age of three. And many community members are like him. And as long as people are hungry and desperate, that same calamity could occur again. And so we were able to raise some money and provide seedlings to the first 1,000 vulnerable households, the most one vulnerable. We started off with 1,000, including the poacher's wife, who's among the poorest of the poor. And when we were distributing the questionnaires, we asked people, why are people poaching? Because everyone recognized that poaching had really gone up during the pandemic. So it's like November 2020 when we distributed the seedlings. And they said, because people are hungry. And so we were glad that we were doing this. And we also then continued the program and distributed another 500 this year. And so that's also gone really well. And the reason why we realized then that food security fits very well with our program, you know, our One Health approach to conservation, because, you know, once people are hungry, they're going to go in, they're going to eat bushmeat. This bushmeat could also make them sick. Uganda right now is in the midst of an Ebola outbreak. Luckily, the cases have stopped. I think it's beginning to the point where we're getting to the peak, thankfully, because we haven't had a number of new deaths in the past few days. But generally, you know, even if the source of Ebola has never been fully determined, there is a huge possibility that it could have come from wildlife, just like Marburg, which is very similar to Ebola. It's also a hemorrhagic disease with the same kind of virus in the same kind of virus family was the fruit bat was found to be the source of Marburg. Some people have died of Marburg in Uganda in the past, in the previous years. And so we've also now switched from, not, I wouldn't say switched, we continue to talk about how to prevent COVID and how to minimize the risk of COVID, but we've also started to talk about Ebola as well. Yeah, I guess, I mean, COVID is just one among many kind of disease threats. And, and so far, while we've been speaking about community-led conservation. I think perhaps I haven't made it explicit that, you know, all of these efforts that you're doing are in many ways biosecurity efforts, kind of the one health approach. It's to, it's to keeping both humans and, and uh, gorillas safe in these kinds of relationships and kind of the, the monitoring and the surveillance you're doing are, are efforts to help with that. 
So I have said a couple of times in this season so far that the One Health concept, I see, I see why it's important. And, and I definitely think that we need to be looking at humans and animals at the same time. Like to focus on one without looking at the other seems nonsensical. But I have some concerns about One Health and, and maybe you can help me, help me think about them because it seems to me like One Health could also readily become something that's just used as like a, a greenwashing device where people say, Oh, let's talk about animals and humans, but that specific populations, specific people and specific animals kind of get forgotten about in these conversations. What do you think about that? What do you think about some of the, the, the challenges with, with the One Health approach? I would say. It's a holistic approach, which is the best way to have, you know, to address the issues that we're facing, because diseases are not only going to affect people, they'll affect animals. We're not really sure where COVID came from, but many is pointing likely that it came from a wild source, jumped into people, but COVID has already jumped back from people to animals in zoos, including gorillas, you know, lions, tigers. It's jumped back to farmed mink. And, and then even with the farmed mink, more resistant strength then jumped back to people. So there's, there's that whole thing, diseases jump back and forth between people and animals. I would say that maybe the issues of One Health, I would say is that animals are not getting enough attention. It's easier to get people to give a lot of funding for One Health if they're thinking of diseases coming, deadly diseases coming from animals to people. But when you say that deadly diseases are coming from people to animals, most people don't really care unless the animals have a huge economic value. And luckily, the mountain gorillas are having a huge economic value because of tourism. And they're having it in Uganda and DRC because tourists pay a lot of money to visit. And this money is lifting communities out of poverty. So the government will sit up and listen. But if it's a species that's not charismatic, and it's not really affecting people, they don't really care. But you still need to address them equally because eventually, even if you think it doesn't matter, it will eventually matter because when we destroy nature, we end up ultimately destroying ourselves. So I think the message that disease, what you'd call reverse zoonosis, or if you really want to get into it, I mean, zoonosis is basically disease between people and animals, but, to, 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 but most people just think it's diseases from animals to people. So sometimes to just make it, it even clearer what we're talking about, you talk about reverse zoonosis, which is basically coming from people to animals. And that more attention needs to be put to that, you know, as much as from animals to people. Yeah, because like you, like you said earlier, right, we, um, we are animals. And to kind of think that we think that diseases aren't also flowing through us and through our contact with, with numerous other animals and back to us and back to them. I mean, COVID, at the very least, if, even if it's not the only disease out there, I think has kind of taught us how connected we are and that we need to pay attention to, to these kinds of flows of disease. So you're speaking about reverse zoonosis, and I've recently been reading a bit about typhoid. So this is just like a personal interest now, <laughs> because I was quite interested to find out that typhoid primarily affects humans and that most other animals don't actually have the, the side effects of typhoid or typhoid fever, um, which can be quite serious, including including death. So you mentioned earlier, though, that gorillas can also get typhoid. because Is this because we're so genetically close? Yes, gorillas and chimps can get typhoid and orangutans because we're so genetically close and they can get it and get really sick. So, yeah, unfortunately, whatever makes us really sick makes them really sick. And even like with COVID, 
generally the in what they found in San Diego Zoo and other zoos is that the most elderly animals suffered more than the others. And uh, the elderly silverback of 48 years old in San Diego Zoo had to get monoclonal antibodies to get better, which is an extreme treatment that's used for COVID. And it's now actually being used for Ebola in Uganda to treat cases in Uganda. So yeah, it's, it's almost exactly the same. It's just a lot for us to go to the doctor than them. So yeah, and there's, there's not, you know, I read something really fascinating about, again, with, with One Health, coming back to One Health and, and vets, and it was a, a, like a philosophy paper, but I thought it was a really good point, is they said, you know, if we're going to address some of these challenges of One Health and of some species not being visible, because if you're not charismatic, as you said, if you're not charismatic, you kind of get forgotten about, your health is not important, but your health should be important because you exist in the world and your health should be important because you're part of the world. It's going to impact everyone. But this philosopher had said, and I'll put the paper in the show notes, he had said what he thinks needs to happen is vets need to speak on behalf of animals. You've got a lot of health officials that are speaking on behalf of a variety of humans. And and of course, there are problems there as well. But that for One Health to really work, you need to have vets in the room that are talking on behalf of those animals' health. And and I think that you just go to show that, that if, you, if you've got a kind of vet who's standing and not necessarily an aid of industry, not necessarily an aid of how to make industries more productive, but on how to make a specific species and a specific place healthy, you can have really remarkable, remarkable outcomes. Yeah, thank you. And that's something that we're really advocating for. You had mentioned in your lecture yesterday uh, that I watched yesterday, um, the one in Edinburgh, that one of your challenges now is you've had this massive incline in gorilla populations, which is wonderful. But as you mentioned earlier, there are questions of habitat loss. And I think sometimes when we speak about community-led conservation, we're so focused on biodiversity. We're so focused on getting those numbers up that we forget that the animals exist in space and they need somewhere to go. Could you tell us a little bit about their their geography and and what kind of efforts are happening now to, in essence, create more space for gorillas? Yes. A lot of what we do, actually, with the community-led conservation is we work with community health workers and teach them to do conservation work. At the beginning, the community health worker system hadn't reached Windy, so we managed to recruit volunteers, one from each village. Eventually, it became two or three, depending on how big the village was and how big the issues were. And taught them to do both health work and conservation work together. So they promote good health and hygiene. They promote good nutrition. They promote community-based family planning. So women can have the children they can manage. Families can have the children they can manage. It's voluntary. And then they also talk about how to prevent zoonotic disease and what to do if a gorilla comes to your garden or any other species. And they also talk about the importance of the gorillas and protecting the forest and other species in the habitat. And one of the things we also promote is tree planting. We get them to plant trees in their homes as opposed to going into the forest to cut firewood. And so it's like a holistic approach to talk about, you know, basically we found that health is a very good entry point to talk about complicated issues such as conservation, such as the need to have family planning. It's very good for you and your family, but it's also good for the, the gorillas, the forest and the other habitats and the other species in the habitat. So it's it's kind of health is a very good entry point because you show people that you don't only care about the trees and the wildlife, but you also care about them because healthcare is a human right. And so it's been a very good entry point to enable community-led conservation. Each of them visits about 30 to 40 homes and they, all, and they talk about all these issues. Some of them give family planning injections 
in the comfort of their homes. The, the Ministry of Health works with them to do deworming, mask dewormings, you know, mask vaccinations. We also work with community conservation animal health workers, get them because the vets, very few government vets are hired and they don't get all the way down to the grassroots. So we also work with them as well and train them to treat people's animals so that the animals can be more productive for them, but also there's less transmission of zoonotic disease and everybody feels a lot happier. So we do a lot of that community-led conservation and communities are getting more and more trust in us. And when you mention habitat loss, it's a very big problem. So tree planting is an important factor to reduce that. But also we realize that as a number of mountain gorillas are going up, there's not much space for them to expand. It's kind of a, a problem that has been a result of the success of all the conservation efforts on the ground, the government, the NGOs, the private sector. So now the next issue is how do we get more, create more land or have more land for the mountain gorillas? And that's something that our NGO is also getting involved in, trying to speak to landowners whose land is not useful for them to see if they can put it aside for conservation. And when I say it's not useful, like they have wild animals coming on it, they can't really grow any crops and they don't really use it much. As we continue to engage the communities more and more and they realize the value of conservation and they, they trust us and they're happy with what we're doing to, to improve their well-being, they all understand why gorillas are important because a lot of them are being lifted out of poverty because of the gorillas. So, so improving healthcare for them through our NGO and some of the health groups that are around the area and the development groups. And so it's it's just a very good, another good entry point to get people to say, yeah, I'm happy to, you know, set aside some of my land to provide protected habitat for the mountain gorillas and other species. Because ultimately everybody's, everyone's going to benefit from it. Yeah. So it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a whole, it's a very holistic approach, but you really have to show people that their needs are just as important as the needs of the animals. It shouldn't be that the animals are more important than them or the people are more important. You see what I mean? It's just trying to get the right balance and, you know, message out. And the fact that you've spent so much time doing this, I think, you know, you mentioned trust there, and I think trust is so important because you've got so many researchers just coming in, doing research, being there for a minute and then leaving and and you don't necessarily see any benefits, you know, to, to the community. And or you've got like these conservation efforts coming in and, it's a it's an idea for one year and then nothing happens thereafter. And I think because you've had such a sustained engagement with the community for, for such a long period of time, having that trust and being able to have these conversations about land and about health, which are often really difficult and, and political conversations, I think is really a testament to the, the work you and your, your team have done at Conservation Through Public Health. So... Gladys, what, what does an average day look like for you? Um, you know, how do you how do you get to the gorillas? What what a, what is a what does just an average day look like for you? I don't have an average day because every single day is different. Being a founder and CEO of Conservation Through Public Health and Gorilla Conservation Coffee, I still have to do a lot of management and administration which I don't actually like that much. I get most energy being with the gorillas and with the local communities who sh are sharing their fragile habitat with the endangered mountain gorillas. I also spend a lot of time fundraising. I quite enjoy fundraising. 
and advocating for One Health approaches to conservation and the need to protect the mountain gorillas and other important biodiversity and wildlife. I would say that I spend maybe 20% of my time with the gorillas now. I'd love to spend more time. And then about the same time with the communities. I spend a lot of time also doing research with my team, management and fundraising, and 20% of the time traveling around the world, raising funds for organization. Amazing, amazing. Um, gosh, you're a busy, busy person. You really have to wear many hats to, to be able to do that kind of work. Uh, could, you, could you tell me a little bit about the gorillas you care for? Uh, you know, I've never really spent time with a gorilla. I think yeah, I've got a fairly basic idea of gorillas and the kinds of things that they do. So what are they like? Um, do they have quite different personalities? I've known many of these gorillas for ever since I started working with them, actually 28 years ago, when I first went as a vet student, when there were only two gorilla groups, the Mubare gorilla group and the Katendejere gorilla group. Every gorilla has an individual personality, but in general, gorillas are gentle giants. They're very accommodating. Mm. When I look into their eyes, I feel a deep connection. They're extremely accommodating to people and... They say that gorillas is what we aim to be. They're like gentle Buddhas. Some of them are very playful. Like Kavuyo, a certain black pack in Habinyanja group who unfortunately was killed by a bushmeat poacher because he was too friendly. And Rafiki as well, in Nkuringo gorilla group, who during COVID, silverback of Nkuringo gorilla group was killed by a hungry bushmeat poacher. And some of them are very shy. There was Nyabitono, who, whose baby had scabies and died oh, of scabies. No. We treated Nyabitono. She wouldn't allow us near her baby, so we couldn't treat, dart her to get to the baby. But we're able to dart her eventually. Um, and her son, Kasigazi, and Kachupira in that group. So they all have different personalities. One of the first gorillas I got to know was, the truck has named him Bob. And I asked them, why don't you give him a normal local name, Ruchiga name? And they said, because he's very cheeky and he likes interacting with tourists, staring at them cheekily from behind the bushes, which I thought was so funny. Because yeah. those days the gorillas were just freshly habituated and they were not used to people. Yeah, I, I really can, I think, resonate with the idea that gorillas are these gentle giants. But what, what for you is the most surprising, what is the most surprising thing for you about gorillas? The most surprising thing for me about gorillas is that they're very good at birth spacing. Like, they're way better than human beings. They have a baby once every four and a half years without modern family planning, which is amazing. And it's very logical. They breastfeed for three years. And then the fourth year, they conceive and have a baby during that time when they've stopped breastfeeding. And it's logical because by the time they have the new baby, the infant has become a juvenile. He's, making, he's laying his own bed. Gorillas build a nest every night and sleep in it. He's laying his own nest and so he doesn't have to share a nest with mom because they share a nest with mom up to the age of four. And then when the new baby is born, he helps, he plays with the baby, teaches the baby how to play and how to survive in the forest. He really helps to babysit 
the, the older baby helps to babysit the younger baby. And there's no competition for mom's love because the older baby, the, who's now a juvenile, is emotionally independent of mom and is able to really help out with mom. And that's what human beings need to do. I actually spaced my two sons in the same way as the gorillas, and I think it really worked. Indigo, my older son, may occasionally beat up his baby brother, Tendo, but they're very good friends, and Tendo really respects his brother, and they're not competing for our attention emotionally. And I think if we did that, the world would not be so overpopulated. Right now, we only have just over 1,000 mountain gorillas, and we're hitting the 8 billion mark for human beings. And just around the national park, there's 100,000 people, over 100,000 people. So there's something that we can learn from the mountain gorillas and the chimpanzees, actually. They all space really well. Incredible. I had no idea that gorillas do that. And, and I can actually just imagine it. I can imagine, you know, a smaller gorilla getting bigger and helping out with all the other gorillas. And, uh, yeah, what you say makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I really love that you, uh, you did the same thing with your sons. It's incredible. Um, do, you, do, you have a, do you have a favorite gorilla? My favorite gorilla... I love all the gorillas. I would say that my favorite gorilla was Kanyonyi. I knew him since he was a baby. He was born in 1996, and I operated on his older sister in 98 when she had director prolapse. They called her Kahara because she liked babysitting Kanyonyi. Kanyonyi grew up to be a big and healthy silverback who liked to frighten tourists because he was so playful still. He had seen them all his life, and they used to get frightened. And when Kanyonyi died, I shared a Facebook post. I shared my tribute on Facebook, and we got over 300 shares with people showing their photos of Kanyonyi. He's a very special gorilla in my heart. I have to say, no other gorilla has replaced Kanyonyi. He died in 2017 because he fell off a tree, which is rare for gorillas to do that, but he did. He was in a very tall tree, and he got an infection in his hip joint. It never got better. And then another gorilla called Mariah tried to fight with him to take over the group. And that didn't help his healing. He died eventually, which is very sad. Actually, well, the last memory I had of him was when he was making a day nest instead of a night nest, a nest during the day, which is very rare, but he wanted to sleep comfortably. And he was with his, his, mother, his uh, wife, one of his female gorillas who's with, called Karunji, who I'd also known for a very long time. And... Sadly, you know, Kanyonyi died of natural causes. Thankfully, it wasn't human disease. But one, th- one way that we remembered Kanyonyi is through Gorilla Conservation Coffee. Before Kanyonyi died, we had named our first brand of Gorilla Conservation Coffee, which is only got from farmers bordering gorilla habitats, and in this case, Windy Impenetrable National Park, um, where we're supporting farmers, preventing them from poaching, collecting firewood by giving them a good price for good coffee. So we named our first brand Kanyonyi. And when Kanyonyi died, people asked me, are you going to still keep naming the coffee Kanyonyi? And I thought, why not? This is one way to keep his legacy going. And also to show people how far conservation efforts have gone in Uganda. People love the gorillas now. They see the gorillas as their future. And as long as you're protecting gorillas like Kanyonyi, his family and other gorillas in Bwindi Penetrable National Park, through drinking good coffee from farmers bordering the park, you are doing your bit for conservation. So we've continued, and our brand is called the Kanyonyi Coffee Brand, after my favorite gorilla, Kanyonyi. 
yeah, just kind of the image of him being, you know, in a bit of pain and wanting to sleep during the day uh, with with his family. Uh, I'm sorry, that sounds really quite quite sad. Uh, and yeah, what what a legacy! What an incredible legacy! I'd like to say that it's been an amazing journey with the gorillas. It's continuing. I've been with the, working with the gorillas for over a quarter of a century, and I believe I'm going to do keep working with them probably for the rest of my life. I believe I'll be working with the gorillas for the rest of my life. Um, it's a real privilege and opportunity to work with them. Amazing. I do want to switch to the quotes in a minute because I know we're already at, at uh, the 40-minute mark. But before I do, I did have one question I wanted to ask you kind of about the dynamic of security that we haven't gone to yet. Because thinking about biosecurity, you know, there is a, a more obvious kind of threat with security, and that's the, the, the threat of conflict. So right now what's going on in the Ukraine, you're seeing a lot of animals kind of struggle and that conflict itself can create a fair number of issues for for wildlife and also for animals that are kept in zoos, etc. And I know I watched years ago a documentary about Virunga National Park and just some of the, the challenges that they face there because conflict is on their, on their border and, and has been for, for a while now. And I know that you also have a, a kind of personal history with some of the, the conflicts and issues with Uganda's history. So what do you think, like, how, how does actual conflict play into some of these biosecurity measures and, and, and shape some of the community-led interventions that you're doing? Yeah, conflict actually does play into it. We do have a few, a, a couple of small programs in DRC where we also engage community health workers and teach them to do conservation work. And we find that, you know, it's easier to engage people from the area because they know when it's risky to go in or not to go in. And it's more sustainable because as you engage them, it's much more cost effective and you can keep on engaging them to visit their communities, to improve community health, to improve conservation attitudes, hygiene, livelihoods, well-being without, you know, bringing in staff who could then get hurt. So that's having the community led approach makes it possible to continue to do conservation even in the face of conflict. But in the case of Uganda, yes, I mean, conflict had a big, we, we lost so many animals during the Idi Amin years. You know, the rhinos were pushed to extinction, the northern white rhino, the black rhino, and then the elephants ran away to DRC. <laughs> it was safer there than at that time than Uganda. So, you know, the animal numbers really went down. And that was part of the reason I really felt I wanted to be a vet who works with wildlife because when we went to the national park, when my last year of high school, when I took the children after reviving the wildlife club, I could not believe how very few animals they were. There were no predators, at least not any we could see easily. So we even had walking safaris. And I just thought, mm, maybe I can be a vet who can bring back some of this wildlife. So, yeah, it was pretty shocking. But it's also something that I talk about in my book because... My dad was actually, unfortunately, a victim of all of that. He was killed by Idi Amin. He was one of the first people, prominent people to be killed because he was a minister in the previous government, a cabinet minister. And after him, then so many other people started getting killed. It became like the time that he was killed, people thought maybe it's a one-off and everybody felt so sorry for my family. But shortly after, it happened to so many other families. They're like, oh, my God, this is horrible, you know. And so I don't actually remember him because I was too young to remember him. But I feel like, you know, I came back from the UK. I could have stayed in the UK, you know, to be a small animal vet. But I thought, let me come back to Uganda and see how we can bring back the wildlife. Because now we had 
good a good government, and they really wanted to restore the country to its former glory. And one of the things was we need to get the, the wildlife back. And the mountain gorillas was the biggest source of hope because, you know, a lot of these species had gone down, you know, all the big game, the buffalo, the giraffe, the elephants, all the big species had gone down. The lions, the lions are still down, actually. And then the mountain gorillas were discovered in the late 80s. It's like, whoa. And then in the, in the 90s, the early 90s, they're like, let's start tourism to the mountain gorillas. And that tourism to the mountain gorillas has put Uganda back as one of the top tourist destinations in Africa. And when people come to see the gorillas, they also visit the chimpanzees, they visit the other animals now which are coming back in the savannah parks. Our elephant numbers are now going up and the buffalo numbers, Uganda cob, you know, the numbers are beginning to go up. So we're getting all the other national parks are now benefiting. And some of the money from gorilla tourism goes to support these other national parks that don't have enough tourists to meet their operational costs. And so I think it's it's kind of, yeah, it's all part of that whole thing when I talk about my conservation journey and when I talk about the health part, how, it, how I discovered it very early on in my journey when I was hired as the first vet and then we had diseases that actually not only came from tourists but came from the local community. And then we realized if we don't improve the health of the communities, we'll not be able to protect the gorillas and other wildlife. And so, yeah, it's been kind of a journey of conservation but which has really been shaped by One Health. And during the pandemic, it became really, people began to understand what we were doing. Uh, people called me and said, ah, now I know what you've been trying to do. <laughs> After that point, they thought I was a bit crazy. I think, you know, it just shows the kind of legacy of conflict or, or of, of instability. And instability can come from, you know, actual violent conflict, but instability can also come from disease and epidemics and zoonotics. And when you have that kind of instability, it impacts it impacts people and it impacts animals in pretty and in, in different populations in pretty profound ways. So you mentioned your book there. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? Because I know it's coming out soon and it's, it's highlighting your journey. But what's the name of your book? When it comes out, where can people find it and get it? It's very, very exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been quite an undertaking writing a book. <laughs> but in a midst of the very, very busy schedule, especially during COVID, because we've been very, very busy doing one health work, which was needed to prevent COVID amongst people and between people and gorillas. But the book is called Walking with Gorillas, and it's about my conservation journey, working with gorillas and other wildlife that has been shaped by One Health. It starts off by, you know, setting up a wildlife club, talking about how I got into conservation as a child and brought other children to get engaged in conservation and then becoming the first vet for the Wildlife Authority, the first wildlife vet in Uganda, realizing that this was really going to help to bring the wildlife back. People have disrupted their habitats too much. And, and then also finding other, and fight when people made gorillas sick, I talk about setting up the non-profit, the NGO, Conservation Through Public Health, and how we started a new journey of engaging people in healthcare that is linked to conservation, which has been very exciting, interesting. I've really learned a lot in that way. And an important aspect for you is about the woman leadership, right? Like this has been a really significant part of your, your story too? It really has, actually, because I, do, I do have a chapter on women and conservation because my editors felt I really needed to have that chapter. So that chapter's there because we sat, when we started out in conservation, there were no women, you know, in the, there are no rangers in the park, and now at least 20% are women. 
it, it was always seen as a job for a man, not a woman. There were hardly any female wildlife vets on the continent or anywhere in the world. And so the numbers of female wildlife vets has gone up, but the numbers of people, women engaged in conservation has gone up, and the number of women leaders in conservation has gone up, as well as the African leaders in conservation. So I talk about that as well. And I also talk about sustaining conservation, you know, through tourism, the pros and cons, and also ventures like Gorilla Conservation Coffee, sustainable financing for conservation, and also, you know, how to engage children in the future. And I'm very, very excited that Dr. Jenguro has written the foreword. And she really inspired me very early on in my conservation journey. I met her when I was a vet student in London, and she invited me to Gombe National Park to see the chimps. And I actually haven't been able to, but I've interacted a lot with them, a lot with our team members, and we've given presentations together, and we're working with her Jengudo Institute Uganda here in Uganda. So, yes, very exciting. And her being a woman as well, you know. <laughs> A great source of inspiration. <laughs> Her story is similar to your story. Is uh, she, you know, she went in and she did things that other people said you couldn't do, and she she showed that attention to who animals are as as not just populations. You know, like I think what she did was she showed that each of these these animals that she was interacting with were individuals with specific personalities and specific friendships, and that if we're going to respect animals and animals' health and animal stability, we also need to recognize that these different gorillas are individuals that have their own stories and their own lives and we, we should and their own culture and we should respect that. Yeah and actually and actually I was also very inspired by Dr. Dan Fossey, one of the trimets. After Jenguro, then Professor Louis Leakey got Dr. Dan Dan Fossey to study the mountain gorillas and she she made everybody understand that they're gentle giants. At that point people just thought of King Kong and Hollywood, the most fierce animals, but she made people realize they're gentle giants. And yeah, so all of them have really inspired me. It's incredible. And it, it, it does something. I mean, there are charismatic species, but when you watch, I think there is something special about watching and being near animals who are similar to us, because you realize then, like you said earlier, that we are animals and, and we have to look after each other, which is rather remarkable. I talk a little bit as well about parenting. That's my son. He wrote this book, Zookeeper, for a week when he spent a week at the zoo. He talks about all the different species. He actually won an award recently, Moonbeam Award, in the children book category. So I'm very excited. So we've got we've got a lot for our guests, uh, our listeners to look up. So they've got to go and find coffee. They've got Walking with Gorillas, which is your book coming out soon. And when it does come out, I'll make sure to share it via social media. And your your son's book, Zookeeper for a Week. And, and I'm guessing is that directed at other at other children? Yes, it's direct. It's a very good children's book, and lots of lovely pictures inside, <laughs> as all children's books are. And actually, Walking with Gorillas can be pre-ordered already. It's available for pre-order, and we've had a nice review from Publishers Weekly last week, which we're very excited about. And yeah, and also my mom wrote a book as well about her life as a politician. <laughs> it's called uh, My Life is Butter Weaving, and it's really geared towards uh, female leadership, women in and politics, and you know the women's movement. She was involved in beginning the women's movement in Uganda and bringing it back after Idi Amin had abolished women's movement. She revived it and. So she's seen as a female icon in Ugandan society, especially among parliamentarians and a lot of women groups love her. An amazing story. And you said, I think your, your mom's 92 or 93 now? She's 93. Yeah. Still going strong. 
Yeah, lots of energy still. <laughs> Amazing. Your family has an incredible story and uh, thank you for, for all of uh, the work you're doing. Um, do, do you have a quote uh, for us to, to hear before we say goodbye? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is, follow your dreams and the rest will follow. This is a quote I got from another primatologist, Dr. Burita Gaudikas, who was the first person to study orangutans in the wild. I went to one of her talks when I was a vet student in London and she put it in my book. And it was important for me to receive that because, you know, when you're finishing university and you're thinking, what do I do? Should I just rush to try and get married? You know, there's a lot of peer pressure at that stage in your life. Or, or should I follow my dreams? And I followed my dreams and then the right person came along, my husband, and he's part of the conservation journey. He shared it with me. And so, yeah, it was just really good to help, you know, to focus. You follow your dreams and the rest will follow. Incredible. And you have a great story and the gorillas are thankful. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. If folks want to find out more about you, your work, uh, get in touch, how do they, how do they do that? They can visit our website, www.ctph.org, and they can follow us on social media. All our social media sites are there. Like we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. We're more active on the first three because the bigger crowd platforms. So we have a Facebook for me, myself. We have a Twitter, Facebook, Instagram for me, and then for Conservation Through Public Health and also for Gorilla Conservation Coffee. They can also come and visit us, do research with us, volunteer and stay at our camp, or even come and stay at another lodge and just come and get engaged in our work. At Brindy, we host people from all over the world and they can get to interact with our local staff and local students and contribute more to conservation. So if there are animal studies folks that are listening who are interested in animals and biosecurity, if they're keen to learn more from you, there are opportunities available? Yes, there are opportunities, definitely. Amazing. Amazing. So that's really good to know. Uh, thank you so much for, I think, restoring some of my faith in the idea of One Health and showing that when it's done in a meaningful way, it really can change lives. It's been a pleasure talking to you for, for the past hour and learning a bit about your journey. Thank you so much, Claudia, and hope that you're going to come and visit us. We look forward to having you hosting in Uganda. <laughs> I would love to. I got to I got to save up some of the big bucks and make it there uh, so that I can I can come because that just sounds Amazing. Uganda looks like an incredible country with good food and beautiful, beautiful wildlife. One day, one day, it's a dream and I will follow it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> hey, Mandy, welcome back to the Animal Highlight. Hi, thanks for having me back yet again. <laughs> I love it. You say it every time and every time I'm like, of course, because uh, you're doing a great job and uh, it's my pleasure to have you here. So um, which animals are we speaking about today? Yeah, so today I'm highlighting the closely related brown bears of Ukraine and grizzly bears in Canada. And yeah, I'm just going to scratch the surface here today because there's so much to talk about. So first, I want to consider brown bears in Ukraine. Um, and I want to take us to March 4th of this year, when seven brown bears were evacuated from a Ukrainian animal shelter near Kiev as Russian attacks on the city began to intensify. 
and Bear Sanctuary Demazer in western Ukraine offered to temporarily house these bears. And while the bears were being transported to their temporary sanctuary, they encountered road checkpoints, they encountered tank convoys and enemy shelling. Eventually, they arrived at their destination, very stressed, but safe. And Bear Sanctuary Demazer's most recent intake is a brown bear named Bakhmut, who was abandoned in a war-torn region of Ukraine and was found stressed and malnourished inside his destroyed enclosure. So these circumstances are unfortunately common for domesticated or captive animals during wartime. Often, animals are abandoned by human caregivers or captors who are forced to flee from violence. And many animals, whether they're in homes, sanctuaries, zoos, farms, they're trapped in their enclosures and they're just unable to escape attacks or they're unable to procure their own food when humans are no longer able to provide for them. So these circumstances are obviously traumatic, but knowing a little bit more about brown and grizzly bears can offer us some additional depth to our understanding of how their lives are impacted by war. So browns and grizzlies are commonly thought to be solitary, and while this is true, it's also true that they experience really rich social and emotional lives. These bears are communicative, and even when they're alone, they're capable of interacting with bears through scent marking and these other indirect means of communicating. They sometimes congregate to hunt migrating animals or to eat bountiful blooms of berries. Female browns and grizzlies raise their cubs for three years, which is an incredible investment of care and energy. In the Grizzly Times podcast, the brown and grizzly bear expert Charlie Russell describes them as these vibrant individuals and social beings. Russell raised and released orphaned brown bear cubs in Russia, and these cubs were curious. They were infectiously joyful and playful, and they were very resourceful. Um, the latter is evidenced by the fact that even without their mothers to teach them, these cubs learned for themselves what to eat, what not to eat, how to find dens for winter. And in addition to raising orphaned cubs, Russell's actually served as a babysitter for cubs whose parents enlisted his help. So he befriended this particular mother brown bear who would come to his home and leave her cubs with him while she went out to then forage and hunt. What? It's, yeah, an amazing relationship uh, that's just really beautiful and sweet. Browns and grizzlies thrive when they can fully engage in their vast territories. They derive 60 to 90% of their diets from plants and they spend roughly 16 hours a day foraging, covering stretches of up to 40 kilometers. Wow. And given all this, it's unsurprising that they have these incredible memories for where to forage, for the most digestible foods, but also for when these food sources are at their most nutritious. And even though the majority of brown and grizzly diets are plant-derived, 
they're also at the same time the world's second largest predators. So they hunt a wide variety of animals, but perhaps their most well-known predator-prey relationship is between them and salmon. And I imagine salmon, or pardon me, I imagine when grizzlies fish during salmon's dramatic annual migration upstream, that it must feel incredibly fulfilling for them to be able to exercise their hunting skills in this dynamic environment. Browns and grizzlies have really meaningful social worlds and emotional lives that can be disrupted by captivity and war, uh, and especially when these two things converge. And both captivity and war really deny bears access to their large territories that are so, so vital to their ways of life. So turning from the Ukrainian brown bears, I want to now look at grizzly bears who live in what is colonially known as Canada. Now, the well-being of Indigenous people, grizzly bears, and their shared lands are fundamentally intertwined. New research, which was done in collaboration between five First Nation groups and also some non-Indigenous researchers, points to the deep enmeshment of Indigenous and grizzly lives. And what this research shows is that the central coast of British Columbia, Canada, has three distinct genetic groups of grizzly bears. And fascinatingly, these genetic differences actually align and map onto three indigenous language families. So hmm. this really points to a context of longstanding coexistence and convergence in shared environments. And given this, these indigenous communities have really important relationships with grizzly bears as persons, as kin, and as spiritual figures. For example, the Wukanux people understand that grizzly bears teach humans how to live and what to eat in their shared land. They're really important teachers. They also understand that bears have a special relationship with salmon, with the forests, the waters. Grizzly bears will catch salmon and then carry the fishes into the forest where their remains will either feed other species or fertilize the trees. They're in ecological terms what's called a keystone species who balance animal populations through predation who disperse seeds and nutrients, and who till the soil. Now, often people think of Canada as a nation that's at peace, but that just simply isn't true. Ongoing settler colonialism is violence against Indigenous humans and more than humans. The scholars Tuck and Yang really brilliantly describe how in settler colonialism, settlers make indigenous land their new home and source of capital. And this disruption of indigenous relationships to land represents a profound epistemic, ontological and cosmological violence. And I want to add to what Tuck and Yang say by just emphasizing that this profound violence is against both indigenous humans and more than humans. 
Now, we see this kind of settler colonial land theft occurring in the province of British Columbia. For example, for three decades, the Katunaha Nation fought the BC government, the Supreme Court, and land developers against the proposed development of this ski resort in the sacred home of the grizzly bear spirit. So this region is critical habitat for grizzly bears, and it's also where the grizzly bear spirit was born, goes to heal, and returns to the spirit world. So it's of profound importance, this area. The well-being and importance of the grizzly bear spirit is inextricably interlinked with that of living grizzly bears. And the Katunaha people knew that if this sacred region was turned into a ski resort, both the grizzly bears and the grizzly bear spirit would be driven away. So some good news, in 2019, the Katunaha were successful in ensuring that the sacred region was designated an indigenous protected and conserved area, or uh, IPCA. And though they were successful in protecting their grizzly relations in this instance, I do want to emphasize that both grizzlies and indigenous peoples continue to be harmed in Canada through land theft, deforestation, trophy hunting, ranching, and conflicts over ranching, and just broader development. So brown bears and grizzly bears are vibrant individuals who can suffer immensely from human conflict, but they also are individuals who exist within complex webs of relation. And these webs of relation themselves can be fundamentally threatened by human violence. Thank you so much. And and yeah, I really love that the key takeaway there is even though they seem to be quite um, isolated animals that move around individually, they are really deeply connected with others. And I loved what you said at the beginning there about them sending messages via scent and smell. Uh, you know, I, I watched a documentary not too long ago about dogs and their sense of smell. And oh gosh, I wish I could remember where I saw it, but someone almost referred to that as their social media feed, right? Like when they're smelling, that's that. what they're doing. They're catching up mm -hmm. on like mm -hmm. the, the, the social media of what's going on. You don't need to be near the person, but this is a, a means of communication. And I think mm -hmm. that's so fascinating to see, like you might see animals alone, but it doesn't mean that they're not communicating. They're just communicating in a way we're not quite familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and really nice, you know, connecting ideas of conflict and historical violence and contemporary violence with how it impacts animals, but also animal habitats, right? Like what's happening in the Ukraine, it's just, it's, it's devastating for, for the people of Ukraine. It's also devastating for the environment of Ukraine. And those kinds of environmental disruptions impact both people and animals across the, the country. Uh, and, and as you rightfully showed in, in Canada as well, how, you know, constant kind of encroachment into habitats for a variety of reasons is impacting animals, especially animals that move such great distances, right? We think we're these massive migrators. I think the number of us who move 40 kilometers in any given day is, uh, is you know, other than those of us who maybe go and cycle and stuff. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm rambling as always, but that was amazing. Thank you so much for kind of bringing all those really complex threads together uh, in thinking about bears and conflict. And, you know, I'd like to just take a, a spot of time to just flag, uh, do you know Four Paws? 
um, by any chance. Yes. So Four Paws, I think, has been doing some great work with bears and bear sanctuaries and, and interventions with regards to bears in the Ukraine. Um, so yeah, I just want to flag their work here as well. And could you tell us the name of that podcast one more time? It sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's called the Grizzly Times podcast. And actually, just in response to what you just said, um, the oh, Bear Sanctuary Demazer is affiliate, affiliated with Four Paws International. Uh, uh, I see. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, that's cool because the next episode, I'm actually going to be speaking to Nina Jamal from Four Paws. And we're going to be talking a bit about One Health, which has come up a whole bunch in the season. So that should be really good. Uh, Mandy, thank you so much as always for a a wonderful highlight and for your your, uh, scope and, and sensitivity when thinking about animals. Thank you so much to Gladys for being an engaging guest and for sharing so much with me about what she's doing in Uganda. Thank you also to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, for sponsoring this podcast, to the Biosecurities and Urban Governance Research Collective for sponsoring this season, to Gordon Clark for the bed music, Jeremy John for the logo, Christian Mentz for his editing work, and Amanda bunton Wolberg for the Animal Highlight. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!